92 all. Here is Monroe. Off balance, still scores. Not, not only the ball, but Robertson down. Here's Monroe. Using Chamberlain's outstretched hand for a sight of an end. And you saw him elevate the arc on the shot. Welcome back. It's Saturday at noon. Ray Dinger, Glenn Mack now. It is time for Tell Us Your Story, sponsored by Meridian Bank, one of the area's best business banks. Learn why at meridianbanker.com slash WIP. And what an honor today, Ray. Hall of Famer Earl the Pearl Monroe is our guest, a product of Philadelphia Playgrounds, John Bartram High School, a basketball Hall of Famer since 1990, recently named one of the 75 greatest players in NBA history. And, Ray, listen to all these nicknames. The Pearl, Black Jesus, Black Magic, Einstein, The Lord's Prayer, Thomas Edison, The Magic Man. Wow. Uh, Earl, it's, it's, uh, it's great to talk to you. And let's start right with your childhood. You grew up um, in South Philadelphia. And I read that as a child, you were originally drawn more to soccer and baseball more than basketball. Is that true? Um, pretty much so. I, I started playing baseball and bas- and uh, soccer like early on when I was around 10 or 11 years old. And uh, that was my main interest, um, you know, as far as sports was concerned. So how was it that you made the, how was it that you made the switch over to hoops and when did that come along, Earl? Well, I was uh, about six foot three and um, I was at Bar at, at uh, Orton Reed. I'm sorry, mm-hmm. Orton Reed uh, Junior High School, and the coach, um, a guy by the name of Monroe Barrett, as a matter of fact, uh, came up to me and asked me if I, um, you know, play basketball. I was 14 at the time, and I told him I didn't. And he asked me to come down to the gym that day and and uh, to see, you know, how what I would do. And I went down to the gym, and, you know, obviously a lot of my other guys were down there as well. And uh, I, I thought it was just pretty cool, you know, just to be down there and play, you know, with those guys. I, obviously, I wasn't too, too good at the time, but, uh, you know, I stuck around. So you had size, and you're learning the game. And there's a great note in one of the stories about you that other players who were better than you would kind of, would kind of tease you. And your mother gave you a blue notebook. Tell us about that. Yeah, uh, I was more or less going to these practices and they, after practice going to the playgrounds and guys were just kind of dogging me around and, you know, I couldn't really play. I couldn't dribble. And uh, they were just kind of dogging me. And uh, I went home to my mother crying that uh, these guys were, you know, making fun of me and so forth. And so she said, Earl, you know, you, you're going to get better, and uh, here's what you do. So she gave me this notebook, this little blue notebook, and it said, all those guys that are, 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 are teasing you now and, and dogging you, as you say, uh, write their name down. And as you get better, you'll see that you'll be getting better, and you can scratch those names off. And uh, <laughs> that's what I did, and uh, it, it worked out pretty well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'd say so. Um, you know, Jim Lynham, uh, and you know Jim Lynham well. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Jim still talks a lot uh, to this day 
about what playground basketball was in and around Philadelphia in that time, in the early 60s. I mean, Jimmy was playing all the time. Herb McGee was his old teammate from West Catholic. They were out there all mm-hmm. the time. You had Wally Jones, Walt Hazard, Billy Melchione was coming over from South Jersey. He was playing. Uh, and that's kind of the world that you grew up in, was Philadelphia playground basketball. And I don't know that it was ever any better than it was in your time in the 60s. Well, it was certainly a, uh, you know, a place to go. I mean, I can remember going uh, and practicing on the courts that at 30th and Oakford Street, um, like all day long. As a matter of fact, my mother used to rub my shoulders down when I got home at night with alcohol because I'd be down there <laughs> shooting the ball so much. But, you know, the, the advent of, of being on the playground, playing against guys, and getting a good reputation and so forth and so on, you know, that's what it was about. And, uh, you know, most of the guys that played basketball back in those days that were any good, is you found them on the playgrounds. So you are legendary uh, for for your moves, for the shake and bake, for being a real innovator with that. At what point did you realize as a teenager that you had the ability to do that? How did that develop? Well, you know, um, it was all trial and error for me. Um, you know, the things that I tried that, 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 that worked, I kept, and things that didn't work, I kind of discarded. I had a couple of guys, um, uh, uh, Edwin Wilkinson and uh, Steve Smith at the time and George Clisby, and we were uh, had a team, Ronald Reese, so we had a team called the Trotters, and we kind of coached ourselves and things like that. But, uh, you know, we went out and we tried different things. And uh, Wookie was, uh, as we called him, Wookie uh, used to do stuff that, uh, you know, was, was kind of inordinary at the mm-hmm. time. And, and uh, it was like, okay, let's try that this day. And we tried that until somebody got on that. Then we tried something different. For instance, we go with left hand a hook on the left-hand side. If a guy gets on that, then we fake that and go to the right-hand hook. So, it was, you know, we trial and error is, you know, what it was all about. And once I started doing uh, things that were kind of a little bit different from guys, then I started to notice that, yeah, I'm a little bit different now. I just want to read a quote from you from uh, this. This was you a few years ago talking about when you were a kid because I just love the words. I had to develop fluky Duke shots, what we call la-la, hesitating in the air as long as possible before shooting. Gosh, that must have been a lot of fun. <laughs> as long as you didn't get knocked out the air, it was fun. <laughs> you know, and, and it's interesting because, you know, back in those days, you know, there was dunking and things like that, and and guys in the playgrounds, they didn't like to be dunked on. And, you know, those times you, you got low bridge if you tried to dunk or if you like, you know, you know, flying in the air, so to speak, guys would low bridge you. And so you had to pick and choose the times that you were doing the things that you were going to be doing. And uh, it was just a matter of being able to, you know, look at guys, see where they are, and try to be where they're not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, you know, the, back at that time when you were coming through high school and you were playing at Bartram, um, the Big Five was really coming into its own, and it was, and all the schools in the city were really good, and the really top players all kind of stayed home. I mean, it was just kind of accepted that if you were a Philadelphia high school star and you were one of the playground guys, 
if you were going to play college basketball, you were going to play in the city. You were just going to stay here, and you were going to play for one of the big five teams. And you were one of the first really big stars to break away and go off on your own, and you went to Winston-Salem State. And I'm, I'm sure there was interest in you from some of the big five schools. Or What was it that decide, made you decide to go, go away from home? Well, I, I didn't know. There was nobody that told me that there was any interest in the big five schools at all. Uh, there, um, you know, I, I went to Winston-Salem because there was a guy named Leon Whitley who uh, saw me play, and, uh, and he had gone to Winston-Salem. And uh, he recommended me to the coach. And it, I guess by and large, you know, I decided that, hey, let me go down there. I had gone to Temple Prep. You know, and I had had a couple scholarship offers from out west and whatnot, but, uh, you know, I was hoping to go to Temple Prep. As a matter of fact, my, my sister, she was a practical nurse at the time, and she told Harry Litwack, because she was taking care of his uh, wife at the time, that about me, but uh, got no bite even though I went to Temple Prep mm-hmm. and uh, did pretty well at Temple Prep. We played against all the uh, big five schools, at the freshman teams at that time because, you know, you had to play freshman ball. And I did really well, and I just decided to quit because I didn't see myself getting better. So you end up uh, going with Coach Gaines uh, down in Winston-Salem, and the story is, and you're not, you're not the first guy we talked to who had this, that in your freshman year, even though you're playing, you're playing well, that you wanted to go home and that the coach intervened. What happened there? Well, it, it, it wasn't so much as he, he, he intervening, so to speak. Um, you know, he, um, he said that, uh, you know, I went to him and I said, listen, I'm not playing, you know, the way that I w- want to play. I, I say I come in the game, I shoot you up. And uh, as soon as we get even, I come out the game. And uh, I'm going to transfer. And he said, okay, you want to transfer? He said, well, listen, come back here in about 10 minutes. So I went back to the office in about 10 minutes. And he said, there's somebody on the phone that wants to speak to you. And I picked up the phone, and I said, hello? And I said, oh, Ma. (laughs) He had called my mother, (laughs) and my mother told me that in no uncertain circumstances or words, Earl, you stay behind down there in Winston-Salem. So that was uh, that was the closest I ever let, you know got to leaving Winston, but uh, it was a good uh, decision, and obviously mothers know best. <laughs> well, she certainly did in this case, and you stayed at Winston Salem, and you played the four years, uh, and had a terrific career. Your sophomore year, you averaged twenty three points a game. Your junior year, you averaged twenty nine point eight, just about thirty, wow. and then your senior year, you averaged. 41 and a half points, points a game, shot 60% from the field, 80% from the line. Uh, and at that point, everybody knows about you and everybody knows about Winston-Salem State. Uh, and, that, and your team that year won, uh, won that college division national championship. So by the time you finished up your college career, you were on everybody's radar. Yeah, you know, it was interesting. Um, you, know, you know, a lot of times you're playing, you just play, you, you know, you don't – you, you understand what's going on around you, but it doesn't affect you, especially being in a place like Winston-Salem. You know, we're a small town, um, but we started to get that national rec- recognition, being number one team in the country, all of a sudden, you know, and, you know, the, the, the target is on your back. 
um, it was it was just a great time. We had a great coach. We had a lot of great players on that team, uh, and it was good that we were able to do that. And we might not have been the best team that Coach Gaines, you know, had had put on the floor, uh, you know, in his career. But we certainly enjoyed each other and played with each other. And even to today, I mean, I'm, I just talked to one of my teammates this morning. So, you know, that camaraderie that we had was, you know, one of the things that pulled us through as well. Earl the Pearl Monroe is our guest today. Uh, and um, as we said, one of the things that you were maybe the thing you're most known for is your creativity, your ingenuity, your ability to improvise. Uh, not every coach would have given you that opportunity. I'm sure you were delighted that Coach Gaines kind of let your game flourish as you wanted to do it. Yeah, I, I, I realized that. And, um, and I was very fortunate to be able to go to a school, you know, where you were able to, you know, utilize your creativity and, and not be harnessed by it. And, you know, and, and subsequently the same thing with the Baltimore Bullets. Mm-hmm. Uh, with Gene Shu, uh, recognizing you know what you know what I could do, and and the fact of the matter is when you're pros, now you're bringing people to the stands, and that that also is a you know a, a, a great a great asset you know asset to have. So yeah, I was very very lucky, and um, you know we had a couple other guys down there um, that that were you know pretty great players before me. Uh, Jack DeFaris back in the late 50s, and Cleo Hill, uh, who was the number one pick of the St. Louis uh, Hawks, and, and then he got blackballed. So, um, you know, when I got or was getting ready to come in the league, uh, Coach Gaines had kind of warned me about how to, how, you know, the decorum of acting and uh, to try and make sure that I, you know, didn't fall in the same category that Cleo had fallen mm-hmm. into. Well, I read an article that uh, talking about as your college career wound down, as we said, you were you were a national name. I mean, everybody, even though you were at a small school, everybody knew what you would accomplish there. Um, but when they, in 1967, they picked the U.S. team to play in the Pan Am games, which is, uh, you know, no pros. It's all, co- it's all collegians, in some cases, just amateur players. Uh, mm-hmm. They're going to represent the United States, and it's really sort of a precursor to the next year, which would be the Olympic team, which would be the Olympic mm-hmm. games going to Mexico City. Uh, and despite all your accomplishments and being the nation's leading scorer and everything, you were passed over for the for the selection on the U.S. on the U.S. Pan Am team. Uh, and the explanation they gave was that your game was too playground for what they were putting together on Team USA. And and, and apparently you you know that that really bothered you. Well, it, it, the term they really used was my game was too black, <laughs> and 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 the fact that you know. Uh, we went out there as, as the – I played with the NAIA team, I think it was. And the NAIA team, we won the the whole tournament out there for the uh, Pan American Games. I was the leading scorer in, in the tournament. And I was – I think I was the only one on my team that didn't get picked to go to the uh, Pan American Games. But uh, that left a bar- very bad and bitter taste in my mouth. And uh, even to the day, I, I mean, I'm still, you know, kind of pissed off about it. Mm-hmm. You know, I might not say it to other folks or whatnot, but, you know, it's a lingering, lingering thing that's, that's, that's kind of plagued me, you know, throughout my career and even later on until now. Interesting. So 
Uh, you finish up at Winston-Salem. Um, you are the second pick of the NBA draft, the Baltimore Bullets, and you are Rookie of the Year under Gene Shue, who, who you said. Um, I guess my question is, did you find did you find the NBA easier than you expected? Because, boy, you were an immediate success. Well, you know, I didn't find it, you know, as, as hard as maybe a lot of other guys. I mean, actually, I'm from Philly, you know. This is what I tell everyone. Hey, I'm from Philly, man. I can play the game. <laughs> so, I mean, I played against most of the guys, uh, uh, you know, that you know, a lot of guys that were in the NBA. Um, you know, on, on the playgrounds, you know, but guys come back uh, after the season and they play, you know, the summer times, you know, they come in and you play against those guys. And, you know, it was uh, it was interesting. I think I think the, <laughs> the most telling thing for me going into the pros is this. Um, we were playing in the Baker League and uh, um, I was playing against a guy uh, who I think he used to play with the uh, with the Bullets. And I can't remember his name, but he told me, he said, listen, Earl, when you go over and get with the bullets, you know, I want to give you some advice. Don't take the ball out of bounds because you'll never see it again. (laughs) (laughs) So so during the preseason game, you know, the the ball came through the the hoop and and it was just – and it came and it was bouncing like this, and everybody was standing around looking at the ball. And I said, "Oh, I see what he means." <laughs> Nobody wanted to take the ball out of bounds. <laughs> well, that rookie year, and Glenn mentioned it, you were rookie of the year. You averaged twenty-four points a game as a rookie. You had fifty-six in one game against the Lakers, so you were you were an immediate success. But when you look back, Earl, when you look back on that era of of NBA basketball. And you look at the guards that were playing in the NBA when you came in. Oscar Robertson, Walt Frazier, Hal Greer, Flynn Robinson, Dave Bing, Jerry West. I mean, there wasn't an easy night's work for you in the NBA back then because every, every team had, a, had an all-star, heck, heck, all-star, a Hall of Fame guard you were playing against. Yeah, and that was good because it was all about the competition. And, um, and, and the other fact of the matter is, is that it wasn't that many teams in the NBA at that time. So consequently, every night you were going up against, you know, you didn't have any nights off. You know, you were going up against another guy that you had to more or less try and get your reputation built up with so that uh, the next time you see him, you know, there'll be a little bit more respect. Earl the Pearl Monroe is our guest today. And among other things, uh, he is credited with inventing the spin move, uh, bringing it into the NBA, changing the game of basketball, and, and really – it must mean something to you when you watch the ball handlers, the Steph Currys, the Kyrie Irvings, the the, the Chris Pauls. That that's your move they're they're using. Well, you know, obviously things they get older, they they get they get improved, they get you know made better and things like that. But you know, when I look at the game itself, and I and I, I understand you know what the game is. You know, I, I see you know, different aspects of the game, and I can see where different things come from certain, like, okay, like me, I will, I'll, I'll, I'll go ahead and say it. Things that I did, I see out there a, a lot. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it just gives me a good feeling to know that uh, that's something that um, 
I supposedly brought in. But when you think in terms of the game itself, it's, it's probably something I didn't bring in because, you know, people have been doing these things. It's only the fact that, you know, I've I've gotten credit for it. You know, you could look at the Globetrotters. You could look at other guys that, you know, were before me, and they were doing pretty much the same thing. And let me let me give you, a, for instance, there's a guy named Ron Ford who, used to, who was in Philadelphia, and he was teaching me to spin. But he was teaching me to spin with with two hands. I put the ball in my right hand. I start to spin, and I bring it, bring my left hand over to complete the spin. And while he was doing that, I happened to trip as in, on the first part. I had the ball in my right hand, and I kind of stumbled, and it stayed in my right hand, and I continued on. And I, and I said, wow, that, that was quick. Nobody can get to me if I do that. <laughs> so that's how the whole spin thing came about. And, you know, inadvertently, it became the signature move. Wow. Hey, let's take a quick break. We'll come back. We'll get you the New York Knicks talk about those great years and maybe uh, some of the times in Philadelphia as well. Earl the Pearl Monroe is our guest today on Tell Us Your Story, sponsored by Meridian Bank, one of the area's best business banks. Learn why at meridianbanker.com. Our lives aren't like they used to be. They're busier. Early morning Zooms, grabbing coffee to make that in-office meeting, getting to your kid's soccer game on time. Life is different, and so is advertising. To reach any audience, you need your message out there in all media, broadcast to streaming, on screens, and right to the ears of your customers. And that's what we do at Odyssey. Let's build a media campaign that targets the customers you know and want to reach more of. Right here in our community. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com. UIP. Earl to Pearl Monroe now. But the Knicks may be able to do it. Monroe. Listen to this crowd now. Doing some job on it. Here are the Knicks two against one. Monroe. Shoots. The Knicks have scored 15 points in a row. Welcome back. Ray Dinger, Glenn Mack. Now it's Tell Us Your Story, sponsored by Meridian Bank. One of the area's best business banks. Learn why at meridianbanker.com slash WIP. And the great, the Hall of Famer, the product of Philadelphia, Earl the Pearl Monroe is our guest today. Yeah, and Earl, you had uh, you really had a great run with uh, with the Bullets there. You came in, you had four years with them. In your second year, you, you scored over 2,000 points in your second year. Uh, you wound up going to the finals uh, one year with that team. And it was a good team. I mean, Gus Johnson, Freddie Carter, who we know well in Philadelphia, Kevin Lockery. I mean, it was a good team. And you got to the finals one year and ran up against the Milwaukee Bucks with Kareem and uh, and, and Oscar. So you, you lost those finals. But the team was playing good, and you were a big part of it. But then it came to a point where um, your, you and your agent decided you wanted to move on. You wanted to leave Baltimore, and you wanted there was some talk about the ABA. There was some talk about going to another team. What was it that brought about the point that you decided you wanted to kind of take your skills elsewhere? Well, you know, it wasn't so much as I wanted to <laughs> use LeBron saying, or take my thing to Miami. No, <laughs> um, it wasn't so much as I wanted to leave, per se. Um, it was a contract negotiation and so forth and so on. And my agent was the one who really talked about, you know, moving on. Uh, they never got that from me. But in the negotiations and, and things of that nature, um, there were things that were said that, you know, I didn't like. And so 
I just decided that, okay, I'm not going to be comfortable being here. And we had given them um, three three places that I, that I wanted to be traded to. One was uh, L.A., the other was Chicago, the other was Philadelphia. And um, when they came back, uh, finally, uh, as the season came, you know, came in, uh, the fourth game of the season, my, my agent says, listen, Earl, they're not looking to trade you or anything because they just picked up Archie Clark. And now they're talking about they got the best backcourt in the league. So you stay home. So I, I didn't go to the game. And they were looking for me and so forth and so on. And the next day I took a flight out to Indiana and uh, met with the um, Pacers and decided that maybe this might be, you know, okay for me because they really wanted me and uh, they showed me a lot of love out there. And uh, as I went to the game, uh, I looked up and I saw guys taking guns out of their locker after the game. (laughs) (laughs) So I went to, I had to go to a pay phone because obviously we didn't have cell phones back then. I had to go find a pay phone. And I said, listen, Larry, Larry Fleischer was my agent. I said, Larry, I don't think this is a place for me. <laughs> and he said, well, I've got, I've got a, uh, a offer for the Knicks. I said, the Knicks? I said, well, no, that's not going to work either because, I, you know, they were our mortal enemies, you know. And he said, well, listen, take a few days and think about it. So I came back to uh, Philly. Uh, from Indiana, and I spoke with my mom and talked to her a lot about this, talked to my man, Sonny Hill, and Sonny said, well, listen, you're, you know, you're not going to be able to accomplish what you wanted to accomplish if you go to the Knicks because, you know, they already have, a, you know, an established team. Mm-hmm. So I told him, same thing I tell her, Sonny, I'm from Philly. I can play ball anywhere. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, if you feel that way, go ahead go go with the Knicks. And the next day, I drove to New York and signed a contract. So there was that sense that, you know, Walt Frazier was there. And, you know, can these two guys play together? You're going to need two basketballs. Um, but it it worked, and it, it worked pretty quickly. I know I, – I guess there's a story you got off to a – actually, let me start here. You got off to a tough start, and in your third game, you were 0 for 9. But the fans up there cheered you, right? They supported you. Everybody wanted it to work. Oh yeah. Well, you know, it's it's first of all it was a different rhythm, you know, because you had after being you know, having your own team so to speak and going to another team, there's a different rhythm of playing the game that you have to really adhere to. And I tried to figure it out, you know, and I had to figure it out on the fly since we were in the season. And um you know, I was I was always like a fan favorite in New York anyway. So uh, it w- it was tough the first. You know, I mean, I must have averaged 11 points a game. I mean, I'm, I'm coming from 23, 24 points a game to 11 points a game. And when I came back to Philly that summer, guys told me to go back to New York. <laughs> but uh, it was uh, it was a learning experience. And, and, and the fact of the matter is, is that, yes, I could play under any circumstances. And I understood the, the, the protocol of, of, of being on another team, 
you know, the hierarchy of, of how the ball moves and where it moves to and how it moves. So, um, you know, it was a learning experience. Probably made me a better player, but uh, a less exciting player because uh, there was a lot that I still had that I couldn't exhibit. Yeah, I, I think that's true. And, and you know, Red Holtzman is obviously a different kind of coach than Gene Shue was. But I, I, the, the, what I always found interesting about you, the way you assimilated into that team, was was the relationship between you and Walt Frazier. Now, you guys, if I'm not mistaken, I think you came into the league at the same time. Uh, you mm-hmm. played against each other all the time in the Eastern in the Eastern Conference, uh, mm-hmm. and it was and it was a real rivalry. I mean, you know, every time you played, I mean, Walt played you, and uh, and and his job was to shut you down. And it was a real intense rivalry that you two guys had built up over time. Uh, and all of a sudden, now all of a sudden, with the stroke of a pen, your teammates. Uh, how were you? You know, how did you and Walt hit it off right away? Was there any tension, or did you were you good teammates right from the start? Well, I think it was tension um, because I, I I don't think Walt understood why they needed me, you know, mm-hmm. and and um, I, I I didn't understand why they needed me either, but um, but I did understand it, it, it eventually, you know, because Willis Reed was was hurt. And, you know, they needed another drawing card to make sure that those 20,000 people stayed in the stands. Um, but at the same time, you know, we kind of respected each other, Clyde and I. And um, that, that's, that's really what brought us together, the respect, the mutual respect we have for each other. And the fact that when I went there, I told Red Holzman that I didn't want to start. You know, you know uh, I said, I'll come off the bench. Uh, you got Dick Barnett there, and Dick Barnett's a good player. I'll work my way. I'll, I'll earn my way into the starting lineup. And that's kind of what I did, aside from the fact that I had bone spurs in my, in my foot when I got there. Yeah. And Red, I told Red that. And Red said, well, you can't get it. You know, it's the season. We can't, you can't do anything now. You have to wait till after the season. And I had to wait till after the season to get the bone spurs taken out. The NBA was such a, a, a different product back then, and you guys really helped change it. Um, it became a show. It became players being able to express themselves and how they played and how they dressed and how they acted. Uh, and you, you're in the epicenter of it, right, in New York City within a, on a first-place team. Did you realize at the time, and how did you feel at the time, that guys like you and Walt Frazier and so on were, were setting the style for a country? Well, I never really thought about it like that, to tell you the truth. Uh, you know, I realized, you know, that, you know, we were, you know, it, it was New York. And, and whatever New York did, you know, there was a lot of emphasis on it. Um, but me going to New York, the thing in a nutshell was in the back of my mind because I like to dress and I like to do things, you know, was that he already had Walt Frazier. I couldn't be the same yeah, same person as Walt Frazier was. Yeah. Nobody so could I dress like to, that. That's true. Yeah, so I had to kind of like, you know, most of the things I've had to kind of take a back seat in New York and just kind of be that professional person so to speak, that, uh, you know, that people would expect me to be. And uh, take some of my flamboyance out of the game, out of my game, and uh, just be, you know, just be. Um, And it it, it worked out. You know, I was two different people. I was, you know, as I played basketball, I was one guy. 
And then as off the court, I was another guy. I became a little more uh, introverted and, and such. But, uh, you know, in the long run, I mean, even till today, I mean, people respect the fact of what I did and how I did it. And, yeah. uh, you know, I guess the, the end result is, is, is what it's all about. The people still talk about that Knicks team and the way they played and how much fun they were to watch and, and how they really kind of epitomized, um, for the lack of a better term, team basketball, the way everybody shared the ball, they moved it around, uh, and you had great players. I mean, yeah, I mean, everybody on the team was practically a Hall of Famer. Uh, you had Bill Bradley. You had Walt Frazier, who we've talked about, Willis Reed, Dave DeBusher, Phil Jackson's coming off the bench. I mean, it was, it was a great team, and you played a, a really distinctive brand of team basketball that Red Holtzman demanded. Uh, and I, you know, for you being such a freelance player all your life, I just wonder how, how, easily it was, how easy it was for you to slip into that and just become one of, one of the guys, sort of one of the orchestra. Well, I think the, the the big part about that, you know, going to the Knicks is that uh, the players themselves respected me really well. You know, Willis would, would come here and say, "Man, when, when we not when we were playing you on on Sunday, you know, TV, you know, I'd be right there looking at you, man, because you'd be doing it, you know." And uh, you know, and the Busher, he was the first one that came and shook my hand and and, and welcomed me there. And of course, Bradley, we had played against us each other in the Baker League, and he, you know, he was real supportive. So, you know, it was a great, you know, kind of atmosphere to 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 be around. You know, aside from the fact that, um, you know, when we got to the playoffs, the first first year when we lost to the Lakers in the championship, and then the second year we won it against the Lakers, in, you know, in the championship game. So, you know, the biggest part of all that is that. You know, when you call plays, everybody knows your plays, per se. You know, but we got over because we freelance in the latter part. You know, we would call plays, but, you know, the plays weren't happening. Then we freelance, and that was, you know, that was my style. So it, yeah. it, it, it really fit right in. Hey, even during those years when you were playing with the Knicks, playing with the Bulls, playing with the Knicks, you, you still always came home to Philadelphia and still were part of the Baker League. Um Talk a little bit, if you would, just kind of about, you know, the draw of your hometown and the connection that you kept in those years. Well, you know, I've 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 always said that, you know, wherever I've been, I've always been a Philadelphian, and uh, and you know, my relationships, you know, all the guys that I knew, you know, we, I still, you know, frequent when those guys call everybody. Um, it was, you know. It was a magnet. I mean, my family was there. I, you know, my heart was in Philadelphia, and and of course when I started playing basketball in the Baker League and you know Sunny Hill, my mentor, uh, he, you know, he kept me coming back for different things and whatnot. Uh, and you know, I I just enjoyed saying I was from Philadelphia, and uh, I, you know, I, you know, even now, I mean, I got you know. Still have houses there and whatnot, and my sister Teresa is, is there, and my daughter is, is there with Sandy, and my grandson and granddaughter. So I, I you know, I have such a, a tight, you know, uh, re- relationship uh, with Philadelphia, and and it's the place I grew up. So I've always loved Philly. I think that uh, you know, Glenn. You, Glenn brings up the Baker League, and you know, he wasn't here at that time. I was. Uh, and for people who didn't live through that era, I don't know if they can appreciate just what a unique 
what a unique thing <laughs> the Baker League was. I mean, it was it was this summer basketball league uh, that uh, you had all these teams represent local businesses. You know, Nate Ben's reliable at a team. Mm-hmm. Ducky's Dashery had a team. You had all, you, <laughs> Ducky's Dashery, Ducky, Ducky. <laughs> you, you had all of these teams that had commercial names, but they were st- they were stuck with they were stocked with NBA players. I mean, uh, superstars, and because of the respect that everybody had for Sonny. These guys would come down and they would play at this little church gym, the uh, Bright Hope Baptist Church in North Philadelphia. And, Glenn, that place would be packed on game night because nobody knew who was going to walk through the door. Because all these guys were on the roster, but you never knew from game to game who was going to show up. But people would come and just fill that gym and just wait for the door to open. And, you know, maybe tonight Bill Bradley walks in and maybe tonight Earl Monroe walks in. And the games were just magical. I mean, that was an unbelievably great time, Earl. It really was. Yeah, it, it was, it, you know, and, and as far as, you know, the players were concerned, I mean, you know, everybody was, they played in Philly, played in the Baker League. And, um, you know, we'd have parties after the game and so forth and so on. I can remember being in uh, Bright Hope Baptist Church. And the funny thing about this is that nobody would believe that Sonny wasn't paying people to come to play. But guys would just come to play because it was great competition. And, you know, it, it bettered their games and whatnot. And uh, we were at Bright Hope Baptist Church. At halftime, we have to come out because there wasn't any air conditioning. <laughs> we had to come out, wring our clothes out, wring our you know, jerseys out and whatnot, <laughs> and to, to get back in to play the second half. And it was just a fun time, a lot of uh, camaraderie, a lot of great relationships um, were built during that time with guys that w- weren't necessarily from Philly but came in to play the game. Wow. I know you also have been involved with music your whole life. I didn't know you grew up with Solomon Burke as a as a family friend. I mean, he's he's in the Delphonics <laughs> and all that and some guys who played oh, yeah. with Hendrix and t- I mean, oh, that's, yeah. my, that's my some pretty big names. He used to uh, manage the intruders. So, you know, those guys were always he had a barbershop, so all those guys were always always at the barbershops and, and things of that nature. So, um uh, it uh, music has always been a, a big part of my life, and um, fortunately, I was able to um, do some music when I got to New York. I started managing some guys that were just out from Jimi Hendrix's last band uh, as um, I think the band of Gypsies, mm-hmm. and uh, they came back, and we started doing things. And I just stopped being in the music business about four or five years ago. Uh-huh. Um, it, it show you how long and, and, and what a, a big slice of my life, uh, you know, it's been. A... I, I wanted to ask you about uh, the 72-73 season, when you, the year that you won the championship with the Knicks. You had, you had been to a championship final with the Bullets and lost. You had been to a championship final once with the Knicks and lost. Uh, but in 72-73, you got back there again to the finals with a great Knicks team, and this time you took the Lakers down in five games. Uh, and... You know, for a guy that had been the league's leading scorer, the rookie of the year, you had won all sorts of individual honors. But what did it mean to you to finally have that night when you were a world champion? Well, you know, it's you know, it's a little different, I guess, you know, in in terms of how, reactions. Um, you know, our reactions back in those days were a little cooler than the guys today, <laughs> and. Uh, you know, it, obviously it was a great, great, great honor to to win 
and it was a great feeling to win. But I can remember uh, walking off the court after that last game in L.A. with, with, with uh, Dean Memminger, and we were roommates because back in those days we had roommates. And uh, I put my arm on Dean and I say, wow, let's go back and get some room service. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Living large. So, <laughs> so it was a little bit different, but uh, obviously it was, a, it, was a, it was a great honor. I mean, I had been there twice, uh, got swept the first time with, with Milwaukee. And, uh, and then when we lost with the Knicks, we just felt as though we, could, we should have done better. Um, and we were hoping that we could get back and play against the Lakers the next year. Unfortunately, my, my mother passed away in, in, in January of 73, and um, I stayed out, you know, in Philly for a, a good two weeks or so before coming back to the, to the Knicks. And for me, I rededicated, you know, and dedicated that, you know, the rest of the year for her. And it just so happened that we did win the championship. And the biggest thing that she told me is that, Earl, you be you. And from that point on, I started doing doing basketball differently uh, than I had been in, in New York. Started getting more involved. And then, too, um, Red Holtzman came to me one day and said, Earl, you know, you 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 you're not playing like you used to. You know, you, you got you're losing your ego. He says, and and I said, what do you mean? He says, you know, I I know how you used to play because we we played against you. You know, you need to get your ego back, and uh, that that gave me the impetus to start doing more. And uh, obviously, after you know, winning that championship and then going on and making an All Star team a, a couple more years. You know, that was the impetus to make me do that. We have just a couple minutes left. Uh, speaking of honors, 1989, you were named to the Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame. That must have been pretty darn special. Pretty special. Um, interestingly enough, my, my youngest daughter was there, and, and she fell asleep. So <laughs> I wasn't too interested in her. <laughs> but, uh, you know, a, a great honor, um, obviously. And, uh, it, you know, a lot of these times that you get these honors, it's not that you're looking to try and get these. Here. You're not playing for this. You're playing for the love of the game. And, and whatever happens, you know, happens because of what you've done during the game. But, uh, yeah, really a great honor and uh, happy to have been a part of that. Well, you played 13 seasons, uh, played over 900 games, scored over 17,000 points in your career. Just an amazing career. And as Glenn said, Basketball Hall of Fame was a given. Uh, you were also picked for the NBA's all-time 50-year anniversary team. You were picked for the NBA's all-75th anniversary team. I mean, every team that they've, they've named, uh, you've been on it. Uh, and you were, I mean, you were one of those iconic players that people – even today, still talk about. I mean, you, you know, you. It was more than just the championship you won. It was more than just the points that you scored. I mean, you brought an identity. You brought a personality to basketball that people still talk about to this day. I mean, that must be enormously satisfying to know that that young players they still know who Earl the Pearl Monroe was. Well, you know, it, it is. It's 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 a it's a real warm feeling. 
um, to know to know that and to you know that to be recognized as such. I think um, when I really think about you know my career, I think about my career you know in in two or three different instances. First of all, as a Baltimore Bullet. Um, um, which was, if I would have stayed in Baltimore, obviously my career would have been even different than it was was coming to New York. But the fact that I did come to New York, that's another phase of my career. And I just think people have always understood the fact that because I came to New York that I kind of um, subverted my own, um, you know, talents to make sure that it, it meshed with the with the Knicks, and I think that's why people understand and and, and um, appreciate, you know, the things that I did. Um, and I appreciate it. I appreciate fans because my game was geared toward fans. You know, it was it was to make them happy because if I made them happy, I would make myself happy. You know, back in those days, I would do things and I say I would say to myself, "Wow, I wish I had a camera to see that," because I know it was fun. It was fun. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was a uh, it was a brilliant career, and this has really been a fun hour for us, Earl the Pearl Monroe. You are a uh, you are a treasure to Philadelphia to basketball fans. And we've really uh, enjoyed having you on Tell Us Your Story. Sponsored by Meridian Bank, one of the area's best business banks. Learn why at meridianbanker.com. Earl, thank you so much. Oh, thank you, guys. And uh, take care. And uh, wish Philly all the best. <laughs> you got it. All right. All right. Be well. Well, Ray, that was just I, – I love, I love the old school basketball guys. They're just so much fun. They are, they are, and he was, uh, and he was great. I love the, I, I love the Red Holtzman came to him and said, "Earl, you've lost your ego." Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> in other yeah. words, hey, don't be afraid to shoot it once in a while. <laughs> yep. Um, okay, so uh, we have a prize to give away: the Shibe Sports gift card, fifty dollars. Give us a gift to Shibe Sports. Uh, visit shibesports.com. Tom, Dan Wilson, what do you got? Yeah, we're going to give it to our guy, uh, Ben in Montgomeryville, who I think was definitely our most energetic <laughs> caller of the day. <laughs> he had a lot of energy, no question about that. Uh, we got a couple minutes. Is it possible, Dan Wilson, that there's anything that we forgot to talk about? Yeah, so there were a few uh, angles I kind of want to take on tomorrow's games that I'll get you guys' thoughts on. First of all is, so Andy Reid, second time in his career, now going to four consecutive conference championship games. Of course, he did it in the early 2000s with the Eagles. Uh, already has a Super Bowl with the Chiefs. He's now playing, or he his team, the Chiefs, will be playing their fourth consecutive AFC title game. And I said this, I think, about a year ago, but it actually, I don't know if it bothers me, but it's kind of just, like, surprising to me that I grew up into, like, high school, literally, that he was the coach of the Eagles for my entire life for a while there. And when all said and done, he won't even go down as an Eagles coach. He's going to go down as a Chiefs coach. Wow. That's a great question, Ray. In yeah. Canton, when it comes out, is that I, I think he's got a real point here. I think that's probably true. Uh, I think he's the only coach in NFL history that's won over a hundred games of two different teams. Uh, so he's had he's had two very distinct careers. But yeah, I think you're right, Dan. I mean, if they win another one, and whether it's this year or another year, you know, as long as he's got Mahomes, he's going to win another one. Uh, he'll probably be remembered as a as a Chiefs coach more than he is as an Eagles coach. I think you're right. Yeah, which wow. is like stunning to think about. On the other side, you have the Bengals, of course, trying to get to their first Super Bowl since the '80s with a young quarterback in Joe Burrow. Uh, and then in the NFC game, and I'm actually looking forward to uh, 
discussing this with our guy uh, Paul Jalvitz later tonight because he hates Matt Stafford. I don't know if you guys are familiar with this. Like you just think he's yes, like wild. Yes, I, I do know Paul's hatred. With and Matt he Stafford, is now yeah. a game away. Like it, he finally gets out of Detroit and he's a game away from playing in the Super Bowl. Um. Yeah, and Ray. I mean, he's. I always kind of thought of him like a Philip Rivers kind of guy who put up a ton of numbers and won games, but never kind of would fall short. But he really does have a great opportunity tomorrow. He does, and um, as you know, I, I was always a Matt Stafford fan. Yeah, always. Uh, I uh, I really liked him at Georgia. Um, I thought he was fully deserving to be the first overall pick the year he came out. Uh, and he just fell into an unfortunate situation where he got drafted and wound up with that that hopeless, hapless team out in Detroit. And never had an opportunity to play on a team that was good enough to win a championship. But he was always. And, you know, that's why I was glad that he got this opportunity and he's come to the Rams. And, you know, you're right. I mean, he's one win away from taking him to a Super Bowl. And he'll be the first University of Georgia quarterback to win a Super Bowl if he wins one. I mean, Fran Tarkenton got there three times and couldn't do it. So right. maybe Matthew Stafford will be the first guy to bring that honor back to Athens. I was going to say, it's, good, fu- it's funny. Good year for University of Georgia in that case. It's funny you compare him to Philip Rivers because that's the other guy Jolly lumps him in with that Philip Rivers not, never had a oh, signature right? moment. Yeah. <laughs> so so I was like, last, he always says he never has a signature moment and Matt Stafford never have, had one. I think that throw to Cooper Cup last week yeah. probably qualifies as a signature moment, especially if he wins one here. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got time for one more. Well, and then the last thing is, you know, I know we hit on it briefly, but the Sacramento Kings, I don't know how much you want to play into this, but uh, have pulled out of the Ben Simmons sweepstakes, at least for now. So now more than ever, it does appear like he will be in Philadelphia past the trade deadline. Yeah, and, I, you know, Maury's talking a lot, and I don't know what to believe because I think everything is just, you know, negotiating in, in public. But, Ray, the trade deadline is what, February 9th, February 10th, something like February that? February 10th. February 10th, uh, I would bet uh, uh, $5 that he is still here. Yeah, I, I, I kind of believe what has just come out. Adrian Wojciechowski is the one that wrote, broke the story about, about Sacramento pulling out of this. Yeah, it looks to me like they're not going to be able to get this thing done, so I think he's going to be here for the duration. He'll move in the offseason, but I have a feeling we're going to be living with this for a few more months. Uh, I agree. Um I guess that's going to do it for us. What's coming up next is Go Birds Radio. Uh, Elliot and James, I presume. They're here, yeah. Uh, good for them. Good. They uh, Stay tuned with him. They're going to have a great show. Ray, always a pleasure. Yes. I think, by the way, we should mention that this interview with Earl Monroe was number 100 in the, yes. in the series of yeah, Go of ahead Kelsey. and tell people it is the 100th we did. Man, we started when the pandemic began. Little did we know. Um, and uh, tell them what we're going to start doing next week for a few weeks. And next week, for the next three weeks, we're going to do, because we have now passed the 100 mark, uh, we felt like it was a good time to look back. So over the next three weeks, we're going to do a series of best of Tell Us Your Stories, where we're going to go back and we're going to revisit some of the uh, some of the highlights of some of these interviews that we've done with people like Jay Wright and Dick Vermeil and Al Michaels and Micah Ruzioni and... Uh, Michael Buffer and some of these people, I mean, of all stripes, all sports over all times, we have three really good one-hour shows coming up. Best of Tell Us Your Story starting next week. Yeah, we're going to do that for a few weeks, and we appreciate everybody. Uh, Actually, we appreciate all the people who told us to keep doing it uh, when, well, I don't want to say the pandemic ended because it really didn't, did it? But when sports came back. Uh, Dan Wilson, great job by you, Ray. I will see you tomorrow morning, 10 o'clock, same uh, bat channel, right? I look forward to it. All right, everybody, enjoy the rest of your day right here on 94 WIP.